Well, good morning again, Redeemer family. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to uh, finish this entire chapter this morning. We'll slow it down a bit in a couple of weeks, but uh, we're going to work through chapter 9 this morning. And uh, this is God's Word. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as, of, as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority alone? Does not the law of God say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, for you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others have this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in these sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I, as an apostle, do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with this stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Amen. What a beautiful passage of scripture. Pray with me. Father, uh, make us hearers, attentive hearers, gracious hearers, humble hearers of your word, and change us and make us profound doers of your word. Father, your word brings conviction and it's going to illumine areas in our lives where we have fallen short and we need your gospel, we need your grace. But the gospel comes in power. You pardon our sins and you promise to begin a construction project on all of our hearts to transform us and make us more after your image. And so I pray, Lord, that that inner working of the gospel would propel and compel and empower us to be those who obey the gospel. Do this for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Margaret Mitchell likens 1 Corinthians 9 to a mock trial. On the one hand, this is not a real trial. If you read Acts, you'll see Paul under trial after trial after trial. And those were real trials where he was really imprisoned and really persecuted and really passed along in kangaroo courts. And he was really put on a stand. But she makes note that this is a mock trial. And if you're familiar with mock trial, then you know what she means. There is no denying the courtroom language in this passage. Look at verse 3. This is my defense, or this is my apologia, apologia that Paul says. For, well, for who? For those who would examine me. So notice Paul is making a defense for those who might want to examine him. Look, at, look how often rights come up. We have the rights for this and the right for that and these rights and these freedoms and these liberties. There's even evidence, right? Look at what Paul says in verse 2. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the evidence, the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. There's even motive in this passage. And so put it together. You have a defense. You have cross-examination. You have motive. You have rights. And you have evidence. All the inner workings of a trial. Paul puts himself on the stand in 1 Corinthians 9. And it's as if to tell the Corinthians, if you put me on the stand and look at my manner of life, and how I've lived, and what has motivated me to live this way, I trust that you will declare me innocent. Innocent of practicing what I preach. I didn't just tell you how to live in 1 Corinthians 8. I told you how to live because this is how I live. Put me on the stand, says Paul, and you will vindicate me. I love Paul's humility because this doesn't fly in our culture. The audacity that someone would have to 
put us on the stand and interrogate our lives? We are so quick to say, man, if you don't get out of my face with that. And that's not Paul. Paul says, put me on the stand. I'll put myself on the stand. Now, why? Why why would Paul do this? I think it's because Paul is aware of something that's coming in the future, something that he writes about in 2 Corinthians, something that we confess today. There's a reason we talked about the coming judgment of Jesus, where our confession says that, that all men and all women and all apostate angels and even Satan himself will stand before the tribunal of King Jesus. And all of us will give an account to how we have lived our lives. And on that glorious day, it is going to be to showcase God's majesty and mercy and grace. Because if anyone makes it into eternal life, it's going to be because of what God carried out on the cross of Jesus years ago. Where on the cross, Jesus absorbed your guilt and your shame and your wrath, and he had it deposited upon himself. And so on that future court date, the believers will shine in glory because of what Jesus has done. But here's the mistake that I think we make. We mistake that future standing before Jesus, and we think the gospel works. I got my get out of hell free card pass, and the gospel that saved me in the past has no implications for how I live now. And Paul says, that's not true. The gospel that saved me is the same gospel that has changed how I live. Now, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, we must all appear before the judgment of Christ that every one of us will receive what is due for what we have done in the body, good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that one has died for all, and he died that those who believe in him may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors. So notice the the way Paul joins those things together. I'm going to stand before Jesus in the future, I've been vindicated by Jesus in the past, and the way the gospel works, it makes me a different person now. And one of the markers of a born-again believer is that we are now heralds and ambassadors, admonishing everyone to be reconciled to God. And so what Paul does, he says, put me on the stand, and what you'll see is this is how we live in response to the gospel. We're to be those who rescind our rights to win the world to Christ. That is a defining marker of what it means to follow Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to think through this passage and just make some observations, and then I want to take my seat, as the old preachers used to say, right? Here's the first thing I think Paul would have us consider. 
He would have you as a believer consider the sweet freedom and undeniable rights that are yours in the gospel. Sweet freedom and undeniable rights that are yours in the gospel. If you were with us last week and we looked at 1 Corinthians 8, we did a 3-2-1 sermon format. There were three terms that we described or defined. We defined conscience because it's, it matters what's going on in the context. We defined freedom and we also defined idols. And once you understand those three words, then the passage kind of makes sense. And what Paul was attacking in 1 Corinthians 8 was the puffed up knowledgeable ones. They were resting in their knowledge and they, because they were, were, were literate and because they, they, they understood parts of scripture, they sort of believe that idols are no real thing, right? They're breathless, they're worthless, and therefore the food offered to idols, it's, ne- it's not been offered to anything, right? So, and we have the freedom. Freedom does not commend us to God. Freedom does not condemn us from God. And because our consciences are clear, we can exercise this freedom and eat this meat. That's, that's the backdrop. But in exercising their freedom, they were causing those who had former association with idols to stumble. And Paul finishes the chapter, if that were me and my brother or sister and their consciences were weak, I wouldn't eat meat no more. And you're like, what? And then Paul picks up this section and he, he, he is stroking sort of the, the same guitar uh, string of freedom and rights. And so notice how it begins. Am I not free? Of course, Paul, you're free. Look at verse four. Do we not have the right? Of course you have the right to eat and drink. Of course you're free to eat meat. Why? Because in the gospel, the dietary laws that, were, uh, that the Old Testament saints were under have been done away with because God went to Peter, an apostle, and says, look, what God calls clean, let no man calls, call unclean. Rise, kill, and eat. And so Paul is actually saying, like, look, yo, like, I know we can eat that. I know that that's not forbidden. He's actually saying, I am free. I have the right. And then he begins to talk about his other freedoms and other rights. He says, hey, and by the way, am I not apostle? Of course I was. I was commissioned by Jesus to be his messenger. In fact, he says, woe to me as an apostle if I do not preach. Even when I don't feel like it, I got to preach, says Paul. Why? Because I'm an apostle. I'm set apart to herald the good news. He says, have I not seen the Lord? Of course he's seen the Lord. Of course he was knocked off his high horse. Of course he was struck with blindness. Has he not seen the Lord in Corinth? In Acts chapter 18, it was in Corinth that Jesus appeared to him in a vision after he had the brakes beat off of him. And Jesus says, Paul, take a break in Corinth. I got many here who know me. No one's going to bother you. And in Acts 18, Paul stays there a year and a half. So the answer is, of course, he's seen Jesus. Well, therefore, because he is free, because he is an apostle, because he's seen Jesus, he then says, do I also not have this right? Don't I have a right for planting this church to receive material compensation from you? He says, of course, I have that right. I have that freedom. I have that liberty. 
And then Paul appeals to various uh, secular sources. He says, look at a farmer. What farmer plants and does not exercise the right to eat what he plants? He says, what person has cattle and does not take advantage of what he has? He says, what about the soldier who is in war, who is standing in Corinth guarding things? Do they work for free? He says, no, they get compensated by Rome for their service. He says, what about the ox? Then he goes to the Bible. All right, let's lay aside secular categories. Let's pick up the Bible. What does the Bible say? It says, do not muzzle an ox while it treads the grain. In other words, don't put something over the mouth of an animal, and that same animal is the one that you're using to grow your food. He says, free that animal. Why? Because that animal has a right, a freedom, a liberty to eat what they're helping you grow. And then Paul turns it. He says, do you really think God was just concerned with animals? He cares about the lilies of the field and the birds of the heavens. How much more does he care for you? And what Paul is saying, that passage in the Bible, it was actually for us. Then he says, what about those who serve in the temple? And he's surely talking about the temple in Jerusalem. And you got you, you ladies, you guys, you know the story. You know that when they made sacrifices at the temple, that a portion of the sacrifices were given to who? The priest, because they didn't have land. The Lord was their inheritance. And the Lord says, hey, when my people bring me something, you standing in mediation between them and me, you can eat a portion of it. And Paul has just told the Corinthians, you are the temple. You are the household of God. You're the place where the Holy Spirit dwells and make the connection. What he's actually saying is, I'm a priest and I've sown spiritual things. And the Bible gives me freedom and rights, rights to take a believing wife, just like Peter, rights to eat whatever I want, rights to material compensation, right? That's what Paul is building up. which moves us to application. Paul gets it. The gospel brings him capital freedom, freedom from bondage, freedom from sin, and it brings him numerous lowercase freedoms. He is free to get married. And so the Catholic Church, I think they get that wrong when they demand a priest not be married. Paul actually says, hey, Peter has a wife. I have a freedom in the gospel to get married and a freedom not to get married. Paul has freedom to eat pork and shrimp and beef and chicken and lamb and fish. Some of those freedoms he would not have had prior to Jesus. He has freedom to labor for those who esteem one day and some esteem another day. He has freedom to go into the temple and freedom to go into the tabernacle and freedom to plant a church next door to the synagogue, right? He has all of these freedoms. And here's what Paul sees that I think we miss. You see, when we tend to think about our relationship with the Lord, at least for me, when I'm on a bad day, the way that I view the gospel it is about what God is prohibiting me from. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. You can't do this. You can't do that. And that sounds a lot like Adam and Eve when they were tempted. 
What did Satan do? Satan flipped it. God says, you are free, free to eat of anything except for this. And what did Satan do? Satan made them lock in on what was forbidden. And here's what's happening with Paul. Now that Paul has been made new in Jesus, you know what he sees? Yes, there are commandments and prohibitions. But guess what, baby? I'm free. I'm free to have a wife. I'm free to eat what I want. I'm free to go here. I'm free to go there. I am free because the son has set me free. He has given me liberty from my sin, liberty from these cultural things that trap us up. He's given me freedom to enjoy him and creation and other people. Freedom. And these are all yours in the gospel. Right. So Paul is building this case. Right. Free, 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 liberty, 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 rights, rights, rights. And then he turns, which is our second point, a surprising practice. Paul regularly rescinded his rights. Paul kind of sounds American in here, doesn't he? We're a nation consumed with our liberties and our rights and our freedom. I bet some of y'all could quote the Miranda rights. You have the right to remain. You have anything you say can and will be used against you in the. You have the right to an attorney. And if you cannot afford an attorney, you have a right for us to appoint you one. We have the Bill of Rights that protects our freedom of speech and freedom of religion. We have the right to bear arms. We have the freedom of assembly and the freedom of petition. We have freedom from unreasonable search and seizure, the freedom from cruel and unusual punishment and compelled self-incrimination, right? Freedom, 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 rights, liberties. And you would think that Paul is building a case to say, ah, I'm going to use my rights because I'm American, right? <laughs> and then Paul does what no American in their right mind would do and what no Corinthian would have done in Paul's day. Did you notice the pivot? He spends seven verses talking about not using his freedom. Why? It's because he is not primarily a citizen of Corinth. He's a citizen of New Jerusalem, and he serves a new king and a new kingdom where to be free comes with putting oneself back in bondage for the good of other people. Now, notice what he says. Look, look, look at verse 12. This is where you ought to write pivot or shift or something in your Bible, because he is like puffing them up. Rights, 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 rights. And if others share this rightful claim over you, do not we even more, and then pivot? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. What right? Of asking for your money. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Look at verse 15. But, we, but I have made use of no such rights. And then that's kind of funny. Nor am I being passive aggressive by using this letter to get you to give me something. He says, look, I'm talking about my rights and I'm not even writing you to coerce you to give me anything. If you give it to me, I'm going to send it back. 
And then you get verse 19. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. Underline the all. Paul doesn't pick and choose who he will lay his rights aside for. Anyone who breathes, says Paul, is worth me not claiming my rights. And then he goes into some of the most beautiful words in this whole book. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To the weak, the same weak brothers that you're stumbling, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now what's important here is Paul doesn't say, if the future situation presents itself, I will become like a Jew. Notice he says, I became. It's past tense. I did this already. And so when I was in the past around Jews, I became like a Jew. And when I was in the past around the weak, I became weak. And when I was in the past around those under the law, I became as one under the law. I have become already through the cross all things to all men and women. Who are the weak? More than likely, it's the weak from verse chapter 8. Who are those outside the law? More than likely, he's talking about Gentiles. Who are those under the law? Those are probably those who are still under the condemning power of the law, who are still trusting in self or performance for salvation. Their eyes have yet to be opened. We don't fully know. But did you catch the strangest sentence in this whole chapter? It's right there in verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. Wait a minute, Paul. You are a Jew. You're from the tribe of Benjamin. You were circumcised on the eighth day. How is it now that you have to become a Jew? You are a Jew. You know what's happening there? Paul says, my chief identity, now that I am a son of the Most High God, is not my ethnicity, and it's not my cultural identity. My chief identity now is I am known and covered and loved by God Almighty. That's my identity. And so when I step back in around Jewish people, I will become a Jew, even though I know who I am. So we live in Mississippi. Y'all know that. And we have four seasons here, right? It's pollen, and you can hear it in my voice that it's about to go, and this pollen is working a number on me. But think about how we dress in Mississippi. In the winter, I might wear a sweater and a coat on top of the sweater. And then when spring comes, I might wear a long sleeve button up and some, and some pants. I'm shedding the coat, I'm shedding the sweater. And then in the summer, when it's 150 degrees outside, I'm going to have on some flip-flops. I might wear some shorts and a t-shirt. And then when the fall comes, right, I'm, I'm putting on some pants again and a long sleeve shirt, maybe a sweater, but no coat. 
But guess what's dictating what we wear? It's the world around us. It's the weather. Here is what Paul is saying. He's saying, my chief identity is a son or daughter of God. And in my closet, I got some Jewish clothing and I got some Gentile clothing and I got some weak clothing and I got some under the law clothing. And when I step out and hang out with people under the law, guess what? You will not catch me draped in Jewish attire. I'm going to accommodate what people see and what people hear to my audience. And I got freedom. I got freedom to come into this place and eat what I want. But because of the people I'm around, I'm going to act like I'm around and one of them. You catch what Paul is doing? It's beautiful. What Paul is doing in this passage is not, de- he is not prescribing, you must go to Corinth and you must find out Jews, right? He's describing a bedrock principle. And the principle is this. You and I are to be quick to rescind our rights to win the world to Christ. And we are like him to find our chief identity in our union with Christ. And all these other things that can obstruct the view of Jesus. We lay it down so that they can see Messiah. Jesus is calling us all to be mindfully and missionally flexible in the world. Mindful in the sense that Paul actually had to do the mental legwork and the prayer work and to remain curious to know what might cause a weak person to stumble. He had to do the legwork of knowing what might make a Jew stumble, what might make someone outside the law stumble. He didn't just show up and say, I got it together. That's what he's condemning in chapter eight. You don't have it together. He is a posture of deep humility where he is curious and he remains curious. And once he starts to discover things that are a part of his freedom that he could rightfully claim that might get in the way of them seeing Jesus. He says, you know what? Out of honor for you and out of love for the gospel, I'm going to set this aside and let's have fellowship around the cross. Ponder this diversity. Paul is moving across the spectrum Jew and then Gentile, under the law, those who never heard the law. Paul is moving in these pockets of the world that would have been exclusive to one another. He's doing that because his chief identity is not his Jewishness. It's his union with Jesus. And he can move in and out because that's the way of the cross. Jesus was at the right hand 
but he set it aside and came to earth. Jesus was rich, but he set it aside and became poor. That what Paul is doing is imitating the model that was set out to us in Jesus. And here's what I think happens in our circles all too often. We only think the people that need to live like this are pastors or missionaries or missions and mercy pastors. They're the people who know how to work with the poor. They're the people who know how to move fluently in and out of culture. Did you catch what Paul is doing? That is not a spiritual gift. This is Christianity gospel 101. We are by the spirit all called and invited to hold to things loosely for the good of those who don't know the Messiah. And y'all, this is frightening. It means if you're wealthy, you got to learn how to talk to and interact with the poor. It means that if you are male, you got to learn to how to love and serve Females, it means that you, we all have to be moving towards the other and checking our pride and becoming all things for people that they might see Messiah. Did you notice Paul says in verse 24 to 25, he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we imperishable. Look at what he says in verse 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, wasting my time, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Why would he go to that image? Because the Olympic Games would have been happening in Athens every four years, and Corinth was the location of the Isthmian Games every, two, every four years, but in the second year after the Olympics. So in Corinth, they had real gladiators. I wish I... I, I gladiators? They had real marathon runners. They had real boxers in their land. And what Paul is saying, look at the way that athletes train. Does that look easy to you? But he got blisters on his feet. Have you seen a boxer after a boxing match? His eyes are bruised up. And so don't think that what Paul is commanding is easy. It's uncomfortable and it's painful. But it's the way of the cross. Which moves us to our final point. I want to know why. Don't y'all want to know why? Bro, you just told me about all the rights we have and the freedoms. And then you told me you don't make use of your freedoms. Why? What is so precious to you that you will not exercise the freedom of taking a wife? What is so precious to you that you will not take their money? What is so precious to you that you will not eat foods that you have freedom to eat? Why? What's motivating it? And then Paul tells us several motivations. That's the last point. First of all, it's the gospel. 
He says, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. How can we say we believe a gospel that reconciles the world to God when we don't live reconciling lives day to day? How can we believe a gospel that God is uniting man and woman and child and people from every nation and tribe and tongue? How do we believe a gospel where the poor have dignity? How do we believe a gospel where God is not counting our sins against us if we don't live this kind of way? Paul says this works out of and flows out of the gospel. God is reconciling people to himself, and he's made me a reconciler. He does it because of the reward of preaching free of charge. He says that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. In Paul's day, they had a bunch of traveling philosophers, and they would come into town and they would beg for money. Or they would find a wealthy patron who would underwrite everything they said. But here's the thing. The patron controlled the message. And Paul says, y'all ain't controlling me. Ain't nobody finna tell me what to preach. You ain't finna make me not preach anything other than Christ and him crucified. And the gospel I preach is free. You don't work for it. Someone else has worked for it and therefore keep your money because you're going to taste and see the freeness of the gospel and me freely rejecting your money. That is profound. Notice what Paul also says. What is motivating Paul? He says that I might win more people. He doesn't become a Jew just to become a Jew and to show off his Jewish attire. He doesn't come under the law just to say, man, I became under the law. That look at the that, that that is that I might win, that I might win, that I might win, that I might win. Paul wanted people to be one to Christ. He wanted people who were blind to see. He wanted people who couldn't hear to hear. He wanted people who were sacrificing their eternities for the fleeting pleasures of the world to grab on to something substantive and meaningful. He wanted people who were overwhelmed with condemnation and guilt and sin and shame to have that burden lifted. He wanted people to be restored after the image of their maker. And therefore, he was not content to be saved by himself. He grieved and groaned and lamented that people were without hope. And he says, if it takes me laying aside my rights to help them see, I'll lay them all down. This is the language of of, I wish that I were cut off that my people might see. I don't think we love the world like we ought to love the world. We, We are so content with our own salvation. And, and where I'm going and where my family is going and we don't love the world to life. And the reason we see it is because we are so slow to die. 
He's motivated to win. There's even a tinge of fear. And I know we don't like to hear it, but it's in the scriptures. Notice what Paul says in verse 27. I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others that I myself should be disqualified. How are you, Paul, worried about being disqualified? Look at where you go. Look at what you've done. How is that still in the back of your mind? Here is why it's in the back of his mind, family. Because he knows the gospel that comes in power to rescue him. It must. It must come in power and make us tender and make us patient and make us kind and make us willing to die to rights for others because that's how we got saved. Someone died to his rights to save us. The gospel demands this conduct. Man, when we live this way, man, we get so much joy We get the joy of having somebody you shared the gospel with 15 years ago on an airplane who was engaged and we're both engaged. I'm going to see Karen and she's engaged. I'm engaged. We're sitting next to each other on the airplane. And the Lord just said, man, share the gospel with her. And that woman met Jesus in the air. And she found me on Facebook. And she said, I'm a Christian, and so is my husband, and so are my children. And it's because you took the time to talk to me about Jesus on an airplane, and you didn't even know me. There's a joy, saints, when we are willing to lay. I had freedom. I could have put my headphones on and listened to my own music and did my own thing. But the Holy Spirit says, no, lay that freedom down, open your mouth. You get the joy of watching God use your dying to bring people to life. Here's what I want you to do in the next couple days. It's something that one my spiritual director is asking me to do. And it's to do the daily examine. Just at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day, just play the last 24 hours of your life in your mind. Where were you scared? And where were you tempted? And where did you fail? And where did you see God's grace? And where did you obey? And to come to the Lord, like right then and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Like, I feel short. But then to say, Lord, I need your grace. Like, pardon me and cleanse me. And then to come out of that place of asking for a new obedience and a greater resolve. I'm telling you, saints, the Lord meets those prayers. What would it look like this week? Lord, Have I tasted your freedom today? And Lord, when did I die to my freedom? 
for the service of others? And when did I watch you work through me? And here's what's going to happen. We're going to be lamenting our fear. And we're going to be asking the Lord, make us more like you, make us more courageous. And guess what? When we daily examine ourselves under the gaze of the spirit, we don't have to be terrified for the future judgment. Because the spirit is breaking in and working and moving right here and right now. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. Thank you for your word. It is so rich and beautiful and good. Lord, I pray that you will make us like Paul, who says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Make us ultimately like Jesus, who died to rights for the salvation of the world. Get glory, Lord, through our dying. May many come to life, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.